Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, May 5th. Today's podcast focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm Megan Oftermat, and here are this week's stories. The New York City Council is considering a new bill that would prevent appearance-based discrimination. WFUV's Maya Sargent spoke to New Yorkers, healthcare professionals, and advocates to get the story. Did you know that weight-based discrimination is still legal in 49 states? Michigan is the only area that has statewide legislation in place to protect people who have faced this type of discrimination. There's protection in a handful of cities like San Francisco and Madison, but not New York. Local activists and lawmakers are trying to change this reality. Intro 0209 is currently being considered by the New York City Council. That's the bill that would ban appearance-based discrimination. Council member of District 27, Natasha Williams, is the co-chair of this bill. Over email, she said this legislation is important to create a more just and equitable society. But beyond implementing legal protection, I sat down with various advocates who explain why legislation is only one part of the puzzle. Tigris Osborne is the chair of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance more commonly known as NAFA. She says there are too many incorrect assumptions about fat people. Is the idea that fat people are fat because we are lazy. Osborne says people have misjudged fat bodies for years. There's this pervasive idea that, that fat represents something other than just it is fat, right? So it must represent something about the way you eat. It must represent something about the way you exercise. It must represent something about the way you are or the kind of person you are. Osborne says anti-fatness has become so intrinsically woven into society. It surfaced untrue stereotypes about fat bodies. But Osborne says if you take a step back, you'll find they are completely untrue. If you just hit pause on that narrative and look at the world around you, you can see people of all body sizes and all body shapes who are all of those things, right? Osborne's work at NAFA is working to improve legislative protections for fat people and diminish assumptions. However, Osborne says they're not the only factors that need to change. She wants there to be more consideration about the physical needs of fat bodies. Tracy Cox, a freelance opera singer currently on contract with the Metropolitan Opera, agrees. She says in the last 30 years, changes in her workplace environment have been impacted by appearance-based discrimination. Casting has shifted towards casting for the camera rather than casting for the voice. That's because many operas are now streamed on an HD broadcast. These changes have incited weight-based discrimination, which makes performers question their body type. There is an incredible amount of pressure and stigma and discrimination when it comes to what kind of body is allowed on stage across the country, across the world. Cox says there was a time when she tried to change her body to fit these ideals. In an industry that has such a large emphasis on appearance, she says these can be extremely detrimental to the health of fat people that feel like they need to fit in. And these consequences affect far more than just the performing arts industry. Eating disorder clinician Rebecca Eyre says weight-based discrimination has found its way into the healthcare and eating disorder industry. She says there are certain qualifications required to receive medical support for eating disorders. 
well, you can see in insurance authorization practices that it's really, really difficult to get insurance to cover eating disorder treatment unless you're underweight. She says this is a huge problem as less than 6% of people with an eating disorder are medically underweight. So that's 94% of people with eating disorders who don't quote unquote look like they have an eating disorder. Eyre says that there is such a pervasive connection between weight and health in society that warps so many opinions, including professionals. It's very common for folks who are higher weight to have doctors and nurses automatically assume that whatever their ailments are, whatever their presenting problem is that day, would be helped if they would just lose weight. She says these conditions are often completely unrelated. We're talking about sore throats, right? We're talking about endometriosis. We're talking about things that have absolutely nothing to do with weight, and they're still told by their doctors that they need to lose weight. And she says this dependency on weight as an indicator of health has wide-reaching consequences for people trying to fund important treatments. Transgender folks who are looking for gender-affirming care have to be, there's certain BMI requirements for those things, so totally unrelated issues. Advocates say that the effects of weight-based discrimination can be felt in almost every sector. This is just one of the reasons why the proposed bill is so important. Intro 0209 is now being considered by the New York City Council. If the legislation receives a majority vote, it will be passed to Mayor Adams for a final decision. And while the passage of this bill will be a huge success for New Yorkers, advocates say they will keep fighting until every person receives the same protections. With WFUV News, I'm Maya Sargent. That was WFUV's Maya Sargent talking about a new city council bill that could combat appearance-based discrimination. Summer's bounty in New York City is right around the corner, and for urban foragers, that means it's time to get creative. Foraging is technically prohibited in the city, but a handful of New Yorkers have found loopholes in the system. I had the chance to report on anti-foraging legislation during the summer, but I'm back today with the lay of the land for you. This is wow, the wow, most wow. potent mint. Um, it's so potent. It's called chocolate I was going to say, it, it smells like chocolate. It smells like mole bitters. Okay, yeah. So it's like um, a licorice, slightly infused mint. It creates this okay. sensation. So we're okay. wrapping this yes. strawberry in this chocolate mint. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. That was me in Brooklyn with Samuel Pressman, where we were foraging for food four stories above street level. We're sitting here on this rooftop food garden. Bundles of fragrant mint, purple basil, and furry sage erupt out of discarded wooden pallets. Onions and herbs peek out of holes drilled into gutters stuffed with soil. Instead of string lights, purple and green bean vines rope around the rooftop, decorating the space. We are surrounded by plants. Orange mint, peppermint, spearmint, basil, oregano, strawberries, sorrel, clover, parsley, sage. There's a reason why we're picking and eating edible plants up here and not down on street level. It has to do with the laws surrounding foraging, and not just here in New York, but all over the country. We'll come back to the rooftop in Brooklyn a bit later on, but first, I asked Balin Linekin to explain these laws to me. He's a lawyer who specializes in food law and policy, and he's written extensively about anti-foraging legislation. 
There's a blanket ban on foraging in city parks, and the city views even the picking of a berry uh, or of a dandelion to be damaging park property and, and plant life. Here's the blanket ban as written by the New York City Parks Department. No person shall deface, write upon, sever, mutilate, kill, or remove from the ground any plants, flowers, shrubs, or other vegetation under the jurisdiction of the department without the permission of the commissioner. That's absurd, but that's unfortunately the way that many cities across the country, states, uh, and even federal parks, national parks, view foraging. Anti-foraging rules aren't new. In fact, they go back centuries. The first uh, rules against foraging were put in place to push Native Americans off their lands. The same rules were implemented in the South after the Civil War to prevent newly freed slaves from foraging. And then again in the 1880s in the Adirondacks to prevent poor white farmers from farming their lands. When the National Park Service was created in 1916, prohibiting foraging became the default. In the 60s, rules shifted to allow independent national park superintendents to establish their own regulations for individual parks. That's why, today, some parks allow foraging and others don't. But the changes that were made to those original anti-foraging mandates, they still excluded indigenous people. Racism, it's classism, colonialism or imperialism. Yeah, I think that there are certainly tinges of all of those uh, elements in anti-foraging laws today. Because of this, people are pushing to repeal anti-foraging laws in New York City. People like Mary Mattingly. Those are the things that I think are most important. Giving us agency in public space, access to fresh foods and healthy foods, and then also sharing the work of caring for the space. Mary's a visual artist, and she's been getting creative about growing and foraging food in New York for years. Back in 2016, she founded Swale. Swale was a traveling barge where people could forage for food. She also co-created the Bronx Concrete Park Foodway, where people can still go forage today. So learning about New York City's public land use and that it's illegal to forage on public land made me try to sort of rethink the barge project as a space where anyone could forage fresh foods for free. All of these projects have loopholes that allow for foraging. But Mary doesn't think it should be that hard. If another use was added to public parkland, then our food systems could look much different in the city. Until those rules and regulations change, urban foragers have to get creative, which explains why I was on that roof in Brooklyn with Samuel. If we had learned about plants like we have been taught about, you know, mechanics or sports, we could realize that there's so much more edible food around us. Samuel doesn't want to oversimplify it. Look, not all plants are edible, and after centuries as an industrial center, the fact of the matter is, a lot of New York City's soil is contaminated and not safe for growing food. But there are ways around that. Mary and Samuel rely heavily on raised beds for growing food on their barges, islands, and rooftops. Imagine if we did have these types of containers lining streets or surrounding schools or even scattered throughout public parks where we don't really see a lot of food growing going on. Here on this rooftop, surrounded by edible plants, it 
isn't that hard to imagine city streets lined with raised beds of forageable foods. This foraging activity is actually much deeper and much easier. Most plants we can eat, we just don't realize it. Maybe then we wouldn't have to board a barge or ride the elevator to a rooftop to forage for edible plants in New York City. Maybe then foraging for food would just become a part of the daily commute. With WFUV News, I'm Megan Oftermat. The coronation of Charles III is this Saturday, May 6th, in the United Kingdom. Our international correspondent, Liam Dalborn, was on the ground outside Buckingham Palace this week, talking to people about the historic event. Joining me now is Liam Dalborn of WFUV News. Liam, could you tell us where you are right now? Hi, Jay. Right now, I'm reporting from London for the King Charles III's coronation ceremony. Could you describe the atmosphere at Buckingham Palace right now? There's a lot of excitement here. Preparations for King Charles III's coronation are already underway at Buckingham Palace in London. The iconic red, white, and blue pattern flags are everywhere. The flags are flying along the mall in preparation for the King's procession from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey. Road closures have already begun, grandstands are set up near Buckingham Palace, and fences are being put up along many streets. So how are local businesses preparing for the coronation of King Charles III in London? The local stores and pubs are all decked out with flags, pennants, and of course souvenirs. Stores are selling merchandise, many with the king's face. I spoke with one sales clerk at M&S who says that these items have been selling quickly. Pubs are expected to see a huge crowd. One pub employee told me that it will be a good day for business, with many people watching the festivities on the TVs. And Liam, has there been any negative feedback about the coronation? Jay, I haven't heard much negative feedback from the people about the coronation. Only a couple of people grumbling about traffic and road closures. Really, everyone is really excited and positive here. It should be a good day. I spoke with some of the individuals who say they are concerned about the public transportation around London on Coronation Day. There are expected to be public transportation closures, so many have decided to watch it on television and stay home. And what else are people planning to do to celebrate on the day of Coronation? Well, Jay, there is a lot going on for the Coronation. I talked to a group of college girls who have reservations at a pub. They said that they wanted to watch it with their friends. I spoke with a family of four who are going to go to the procession to try to see the new king. The parents wanted their kids to witness this historic event. Many locals are going to stay home and watch it at home so they don't miss a thing. London is getting ready for that big day on May 6th. Reporting from London, I'm Liam Dalborn with WFUV News. And in New York, I'm Jay Doherty with WFUV News. That was WFUV's Jay Doherty talking to Liam Dalborn about the upcoming coronation of Charles III. And that's it for the weekly wrap-up. You can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews just like the ones you heard exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Megan Oftermatt.